We are continuing our series in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. And this past few weeks, we've been starting from the very beginning. Here we go. And today, we are up to verses 18 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Now, uh, we've, for the past two weeks, we began by listening to Paul in this letter to the Corinthian church um, talk about how thankful he is for them and how thankful he is for God's work amongst them, the authentic work of the Holy Spirit in their midst. But last week, he started to get into the nitty-gritty of some issues that he was having with the Corinthian church and, and stuff that was happening there. And the first issue was division. Just kind of going back to last week a little bit, there were people there who were saying things like, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And there was this divisive atmosphere that was within this church, basically paying people saying, I'm on team Paul, or I'm on team Apollos, and, and this division. And whereas it might have seemed like they were really about lifting up the name of the teacher that they were following, it, I really believe it was about lifting up their own name. By saying, I associate with Paul, it said something about themselves. Oh, I'm like Paul, or I associate with Apollos, so I am like Apollos. It really became about themselves, and, and, and I talked about how the cure for that is lifting up the name of Jesus, really being about the name of Jesus, the one who was crucified for us and the one in whose name we are baptized. And I ended last week on verse 17, and I kind of glossed over it because verse 17 really leads into the topic of today, verses 18 through 31. So let me touch upon this again. In verse 17, Paul said this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." Now, the reason Paul particularly brings up eloquent wisdom is because of what was happening there. You know, some people were following Paul, but those who were following Apollos were particularly impressed with how eloquent he was. And they actually didn't think Paul was that great of a speaker, that great of a communicator. So there were divisions based upon these things, upon worldly sophistry or eloquence. And so Paul dives into that today in the rest of chapter 1. So let's look here at verses 18 through 25, and I'll talk for a while, and then we'll look at the rest of the chapter. It says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe." For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The title of this message today is A Foolish Message from Foolish Messengers. A Foolish Message from Foolish Messengers. Here, Paul talks about um, the response that the world will have to the message of the gospel. And there are two responses that he talks about. First, that of the Jews, and second, that of the Greeks. He says, for the Jews, they will demand signs and power, and the message of the cross to them is a stumbling block. Uh, It's in the Greek word there, it's scandalon, like where we get the word scandalous. In other words, it's offensive. It's offensive. For the Greeks, however, the message of the cross is folly. In other words, it is foolishness. And Paul's saying this is how the world will view the Christian message. They will view it as either foolish or weak or maybe even both. This is how the Corinthians were judging Paul, actually. Because later on, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, the next letter after this, things haven't changed too much, actually. Paul says that people there were saying this about him. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. He came with a message of weakness and that lacked eloquence and wisdom, according to them. The same things that he's talking about here. Paul is saying, Corinthians, you are the way that you're judging me and the message that I'm bringing, and you're saying, well, he looks weak. He doesn't really talk real good. He's not very eloquent like Apollos. He's saying the way that you're judging me and the message that I'm bringing is actually the same way that the world judges the gospel. The world looks at it and says that it is foolishness, it's not eloquent, and it is also weak. Brothers and sisters, what do we do in the face of this type of judgment from the world. Paul says, be careful in verse 17. If we play by the rules of the world, if we try to make the gospel message eloquent like what the world wants or powerful like what the world wants, we risk emptying it of its power. Did you know that in the way that we preach the gospel to other people, that we share the message of Jesus Christ, we can do it in such a way where we actually empty it of power? We can actually do it in a way where we empty it of power in how we present the gospel to other people. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I don't want to present the gospel that way. I don't want to present it in a way where it's emptied of power. I want to present it in a way where it is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So what do we have to be careful of? Of what the Jews demand and of what the Greeks demand. First, let's look at the, the Greeks here for a moment. Paul says that for the Greeks, they look at the message of the gospel and they say it's folly, it's foolishness. You can translate that Greek word there, uh, Maria, as ridiculous thought. The Greeks will hear the gospel, this message about God who came and died 
for us, because we were bad, sinful people, and then he rose from the dead again, they're going to listen to that and say, that that's a ridiculous idea. That's totally foolish. That's a ridiculous thought. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament said this about the word Maria. He said it denotes a physical or intellectual deficiency in animals or men, in their conduct and actions, also in things. The word can refer to physical sloth or dullness, but its main reference is to the intellectual life. Brothers and sisters, what Paul is saying is, in this world, when we preach the message of Jesus to other people, they're going to say, that's stupid. Man, that is so ridiculous. Do you actually believe that in the 21st century, in this day and age, in this educated world that we live in? Look at how far we've progressed over the past 1,000 years, 2,000 years, and you believe in that ridiculous thing? Come on. Are you serious? That's what Paul is saying the world will say. And I think for many of us, that may feel familiar, particularly in this environment that we find ourselves in this day. So what do we do? How does Paul respond to this? Remember, Paul was operating in a Greek Hellenistic environment. Rome was in charge, but the culture of Greece was still dominant. It was a Hellenistic environment. Paul, if you remember from Acts chapter 17, went to preach the gospel in Athens. Athens at this time was still the epicenter of Western culture and thought, not Rome. Rome was the center of power, but Athens was the center of culture. That, that's, that's, where, that's where, where, where people went if they wanted to learn and philosophize. That's where the trendsetters and, and the culture makers were in that time. They were in Athens. And Paul was preaching the gospel at the Areopagus, if you remember from Acts 17. And the Areopagus was a very distinguished, important, reputable institution back then. It was basically the place where the people sat around and they were the tastemakers who decided about new ideas. Were they to be accepted? Were they to be rejected? They were the trendsetters. They were the culture makers of that time. That's where Paul was preaching the gospel. He preached the gospel there to the Stoics. The Stoics were in full effect at this time. F.F. Bruce, he says, he describes the Stoics in this way. They claimed the Cypriot Zeno as their founder. And they were called Stoics because they met in the Stoa Poikili, the painted colonnade in the Agora, where he habitually taught in Athens. Their system aimed at living consistently with nature. And in practice, they laid great emphasis on the primacy of the rational faculty in humanity and on individual self-sufficiency. In theology, they were essentially pantheistic, God being regarded as the world soul. I don't know about you, but that sounds like you could take that and put it in modern-day America right now, and it feels like things haven't changed all that much. Or the Epicureans, another school that was there, the Epicurean school, founded by Epicurus, members of a family of Athenian settlers on Samos, based its ethical theory on the atomic physics of Democritus and presented pleasure as being the chief end in life. The pleasure most worth enjoying being a life of tranquility, free from pain, disturbing passions, 
and superstitious fears, including in particular the fear of death. It did not deny the existence of gods, but maintained that they took no interest in the life of men and women. Brothers and sisters, does that sound familiar? I feel like you could take the Epicurean teaching and bring it into modern-day America as well, and you can mix these things together. There's nothing new under the sun. And Paul preached the gospel in this height of Greek Hellenistic culture amongst the tastemakers and philosophers of his day. How did he do it? He didn't do it by condescending to their level in arguing from first principles with them. He didn't do that. He preached the God of the Old Testament. He preached the creator of the heavens and the earth, that he was the creator of all, and that at the end, he was going to be the judge of all. That's what Paul preached in this sophisticated place. Listen in Acts 17, what he says when he starts out when he was in the Areopagus. He said this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. If I could kind of paraphrase or, or, or kind of interpret what Paul is saying, I think Paul is saying is basically this, you know, that altar to an unknown God, you feel like you're missing something, don't you? You feel like there's still, you got all these gods, but you still feel like there's something missing in your life. Let me tell you what you're missing. The true God, the creator of heaven and earth. And then he goes on and he preaches. And at the end, he talks about resurrection. In verse 32, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead in the Areopagus, when they heard this, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Paul did not shrink back from preaching something that he knew many of these people found ridiculous, especially the idea of fear of death. Paul preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And many of them mocked him, but some listened. That's what Paul did when he was in the Areopagus. He did not shrink back from preaching the gospel message. He didn't think that the gospel wasn't sophisticated enough for him. But he knew, as he wrote here in verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. All the wisdom of Western society was concentrated in its purest form in Athens at that time. The smartest, most philosophical people, the home of Socrates and Aristotle, Zeno, uh, Epicurus, all of these people. But in all of their wisdom, they did not know God. They did not know him. Paul understood this. So he didn't tailor his message to their playing field. He preached the message of the gospel of the Bible. Brothers and sisters, why am I talking about all this? My point is this, that when we share the message of Jesus with other people, it is not at the end of the day about knowing enough stuff. Man, I don't know enough yet to be able to 
talk about Jesus with other people. They may have all these questions and stuff. It's not about having so much apologetics that you've studied, that you're ready to defend the faith in anything and everything. And, and I'm all for apologetics. Apologetics is good. It's, read books on apologetics. That's great. That's not, at the end of the day, what it's about. What I believe at the end of the day it is about is, this is the more pertinent question. Are we willing to accept that the message we preach is going to be seen as foolishness by the majority of people in this world? Have we accepted that reality? That's just the bottom line. Or are we trying to figure out a way to make the message seem sophisticated and smart, and then people will not think of me as some backwater person who still believes in the God of the Bible. What is our motivation? What is going on in our heart? Have we accepted that this message is going to be seen as foolishness to others? The question is, in our hearts, are we really actually just afraid or fearful or desiring to be accepted and we don't want to be seen as foolish? What is it? Is that what is actually going on? Paul says the message of the gospel will be seen as foolishness in this world. And the sooner we understand that and really embrace that, maybe we begin to preach the message of the gospel with greater confidence and, and oftenness and urgency in our lives. In terms of the Jews, Paul turns to them and he says, now about the Jews, they're different from the Greeks. They demand signs. They find the message of Christ crucified a stumbling block, a scandal on, a Offensive. But for us, we see that Christ is the power of God. You see an opposition there. What the Jews wanted was power. And the reason they were feeling that way was because they had been under the thumb of different world powers for so long. The flavor of the month was the Romans, or flavor of the centuries, or millennium. The Romans were in power. They weren't in charge of their own country. They had to go to Pontius Pilate with their request. They were tired of this. They, they, they didn't want it. They wanted self-sovereignty. Before the Romans, it was the Greek Empire. Before the Greeks, there were the Babylonians and the Assyrians and one nation after another, one after another. And for them, they just wanted power. We want to be able to rule ourselves. This is why even after Jesus was resurrected, his disciples, still in this kind of mindset, came to Jesus and said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, are you going to do it now, Jesus? Is it now the time where you give us power and military might and miracles so that our Gentile oppressors will finally come and bow the knee to us? Of course, Jesus, you're the king, but to us as a people to Israel as the center is a time. That's what they desired. And brothers and sisters, and, and I think the way that this applies to us, and the question 
the temptation that I think that we can face is that we can preach a gospel at times or be tempted to preach one that says, if you believe this message of Jesus, your life will get better. Just like what the Jews wanted out of their Messiah. Get rid of the Roman rule, make our life, but we can rule ourselves. We're not going to be oppressed anymore. Make our lives better, Jesus. And if we're not careful, I think we can preach the same gospel message to other people in hopes that they would believe. If you believe in Jesus, he will make your life better. An extreme version of this is the prosperity gospel that is unfortunately preached in many churches, um, if, if the gospel is still purely in those churches, if it's still there, I mean, a prosperity gospel that says, if you believe in Jesus, then you know what? If God is with you, you shouldn't get sick. You just need to have faith. God will fatten your bank account because he wants you to be prosperous and wealthy. He wants you to have all of these things. Life is meant to be good if you are a child of God in money, in health, in all of those things. It's a prosperity gospel message. It says life is going to get better if you believe in Jesus. Maybe we don't preach a prosperity gospel message to that extreme, but maybe unknowingly we say to somebody naively, you know, if you trust in Jesus, hey, I know you got a lot of problems in your life right now. I know you're lonely. I know, man, life has been tough for you. But if you believe in Jesus like me, life is going to get better for you. Do we preach that message? Now, don't get me wrong. That is true in the deepest sense. Your life will get unimaginably better. You will be taken from the kingdom of darkness and put in the kingdom of light. Your sins that separated from you, you from God will be forgiven. The Holy Spirit will fill you so that you have a power, the power to have a changed heart and to be able to walk with God and live a life of purpose, serving God and worshiping God. Everything changes. Life gets so much better in the truest sense, but not in the worldly sense, not in what the world is looking for. In fact, the gospel message is the message of the crucified Jesus, where he says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says that the message of the gospel is, is that you believe in him and are forgiven, but now you follow me and get prepared for a life that is difficult in this world, that is filled with persecution. It is the way of the cross. As Jesus said, no servant is above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. There is a target on my back. There will be a target on your back because the forces of evil in this world and Satan doesn't like you if you are a Christian. That is the normal Christian life. I was on a video call with a, with a brother, a pastor this past week in a part of the world where this is much more the norm. He told me that if somebody in his city wants to become a Christian and wants to leave the predominant religion of that place and become a Christian, he needs to go to the highest local magistrate or authority in that area and submit an application saying he wants to convert to Christianity. And what will happen is that magistrate, that, that ruler, that, that person in authority, will go and talk to his employer, go and talk to his 
co-workers. Go and talk to his friends. Go and talk to his family in an effort to intimidate and to get everybody to pressure him to not become a Christian. Intimidation of possibly losing his job and all of these different things simply if the person wants to become baptized and become a Christian. That is much more the norm in many parts of the world and in places around the world there is far worse for those who are Christians. Hebrews 11, the author said this about what many Christians, many, many believers in God experienced. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And he wrote this about many believers of God in the past to encourage the audience of his letter to stay firm in their faith, to not give up in the face of difficulty and persecution because he was saying this is what Christians experience. This is what believers experience. This is the message of the gospel, that we believe in Christ and experience forgiveness, but we take up our cross and we follow him. As the old saying goes, what you win them with is what you win them to. And when we peddle a soft gospel that, that is wrapped in very soft appearance and people accept that, just like Jesus said in the parable of the soils, that's like a gospel that has been scattered, gospel seeds scattered on rocky soil. When persecution or difficulty or trials come, the person quickly falls away. They'll be like, that's not the gospel you told me about. That's not the gospel you mentioned to me at first. Brothers and sisters, that's what the world wants as well. They want a gospel that makes their life easier, that gives them a sense of power like the Jews wanted, but that is not the gospel that Paul preached. Good thing that Paul understood in verse 24 that it is not about our eloquence and how wise we sound. It is not about the gospel message needing to be softened or who's going to want to take up their cross and follow Jesus. It's not about any of those things. But praise be to God that we have a sovereign God who calls people to him. Paul says to the world, this message is going to sound like foolishness and it's going to be offensive. But as we preach the gospel message, those who are called by God through the power of the Holy Spirit, they're going to realize that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. They're going to see that this message is truly about Jesus. So we preach the message of God the simple gospel as it is, not seeking to make it acceptable. We recognize that it is the power of the Spirit that produces a response to the preached word of God, not our eloquence and definitely not soft packaging. Brothers and sisters, the gospel doesn't need a makeover. It doesn't need to become more relevant 
to your coworkers or to people around you, the gospel has never ceased being relevant in its pure and simple form. It is the message of God unto salvation. The gospel does not need a public relations agency. It just needs to be spoken. And those whom God has called will hear. Brothers and sisters, are we waiting? Let's look inside our heart. Is there fear that this message will be seen as foolishness? Is that actually what's holding us back? Is is there fear that people won't accept? It's too hard of a word. Brothers and sisters, let us speak the word of the gospel and trust the God of the gospel to call people unto him. That's the first part of the message, the foolish message. Now I move on to the second part about the foolish messengers. We continue here in verse 26. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, Paul turns his attention to the Corinthians, not to the foolish message, but to the Corinthians. He says, for for think about who you were, brothers and sisters, when God called you. And he starts rattling off these things. For, For you weren't wise. You weren't rich. You weren't powerful. You weren't a somebody. Can you imagine like if I were the Corinthians, I'd be like, whoa, okay, all right, Paul, take it easy. All right, I get the idea. I get the idea. You were a nobody. You're the scum of the earth. You had bad breath. It's like, oh, okay, Paul, okay, okay. But Paul is, is he's pointing out something in the Corinthian demographic here. And apparently these people were not the upper crust of society. They were not the people who had the exclusive memberships to the exclusive clubs. They were not the influencers. They were not those people. They were just regular regular workers and laborers and a whole mixed crowd of people. They were not the popular or the powerful people. They were the low people in society. That's who most of them were. But Paul repeats the word God chose three times. God chose God chose, God chose the lowly, the despised, the weak, the foolish. That is who God intentionally chose to be on his team, to be in the kingdom of God, to be his people, to be his messengers. Those are the types of people that God chose. It wasn't by accident. When I was young, I loved playing kickball. I loved playing dodgeball. I hated the draft before the game because I would always get picked last or near the very end. That that, that, that was me. I hated that. I loved the game. I hated the draft and being picked last. And I was picked last rightly because I was not the most athletic guy in my youth, understandably, but it hurt. It meant that I wasn't very good and they probably didn't want me on the team. 
That's why I excelled in board games and strategy games later on. I found my thing. But Paul is saying God chose you not because you were last on the list and there was nobody else. And he, the rich were already taken, the powerful were already taken. God intentionally chose the foolish, the weak, and the poor, and the powerless in society to be his people. God chose the B team. Why? So that no one would boast in the presence of God. What does that mean? What, what Paul is saying is God intentionally chooses the weak so that when he does amazing things through the weak, people will look at the weak and say, it couldn't have been you that did that. It must have been God. Like, like you know, if I ran up in kickball and I kicked it and flew over the, the yard fence or something, you know, people would say, I believe in God right? If that happened, something like that. Paul's saying that when, pe- when God wants it so that when you do something amazing for the Lord, people will say that it must have been God that did that because it couldn't have been you. <laughs> and they will say that God is real and they will give glory to God. This is how God works throughout history. Think about when God chose the nation of Israel. He specifically pointed out in Deuteronomy 7, 7, he said, Don't think I chose you because you were the greatest and most powerful nation. You had so many people. He said, in fact, you were the least of all the nations. You were in slavery in Egypt. And I pulled you out. You were an oppressed people. Don't think I chose you because you were so great. God chose David to be the greatest king of Israel. David, who who was out in the field when Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel because the dad, Jesse, said, oh, It's going to be one of my sons. Let's bring in the other six. It can't be David. He's a runt. Somebody's got to stay with the sheep. It can't be him. David, you stay out there. It's going to be one of your brothers. God chose David. When Jesus came, he chose the fishermen, the poor and uneducated fishermen. He chose the tax collectors. These are the people he chose to be his disciples. These are the people God chooses so that he is the one who receives the glory at the end what we do. You ever wonder why in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, um, J.R.R. Tolkien chooses like hobbits to be the heroes of his, his movies? Like, I love Tolkien's books, right? The Hobbit was like the first real book I read. Before that, it was like comics. Then I read The Hobbit. I loved it. Then I read The, the Lord of the Rings. It's amazing books. But, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, they say, was the one who led C.S. Lewis to Christ. And Tolkien himself, in his writings, there were so many parallels to Christianity in his writings. I I believe, and many people have written on this, the reason that he chose hobbits to be the ones that would carry the ring of power into the heart of Mordor and and destroy it in, in, in Mount Mordor and to rid the land of the dark Lord Sauron and, and to be the heroes why would you choose them? They were, they were short. They had big feet. They couldn't fight well. Why not Legolas? Remember Legolas? I remember the girls would always swoon over Legolas. I was like, what's, come on, what's the deal with this guy, right? I was like kind of jealous, I guess. But we're Aragorn, right? The swashbuckling guy. Or Gandalf, the, the, the mighty magician. And, and, you know, why not them? Why the hobbits? Because I believe he was, he was a Christian parallel there. God chooses the weak. God chooses those who do not have strength. 
God chooses people with big feet. So if you've got big feet, you, 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 you're, you're in luck. God chooses people like this to accomplish his will. I believe that's why, what he was saying, and I think that's very true. That's the gospel message. Now, the question is then, maybe you're thinking, well, Ulysses, does that mean I need to be like uneducated <laughs> to be used by God? That if I have the opportunity to study, I shouldn't study? Does that mean if I have money, I need to get rid of all of it and become poor and, and destitute and live on the streets? Does it mean if my, my parents are powerful, influential people, I need to kind of disown them and, and not have any relationship with them? No. No, obviously, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. But I think how this does relate to us is, again, on a heart level. And, and I ask this question, and I think this is how this can apply to us. What is it that motivates you day to day in what you do? In, in the time and the energy that you spend in your life on, on your job or career, your pursuits or, or whatever it is you're doing, what motivates you behind that? Is it to be somebody? To be seen and recognized by this world, to be applauded and praised in some way as somebody? Are you doing things to look for something that you can boast in? Man, I, I need something. Is that what's going on in our heart? Is that what happens? We're just looking for something to boast in. Like I want to be able to boast in the school that I went to as a source of pride because I went to that school. Are we looking to boast in the job that I got and, and the title that I have that says that I'm somebody? Are we looking to boast in the amount of money that you make or the house that you bought or the car that you can drive? Are you looking to boast in, in how many books you've read and how intellectual you are and how much you've kept up with these things and know so much? Are you looking to boast in, in having a trophy wife or a trophy husband? Are you looking to boast in those things? And then as we get older and if you have kids and we just shift those th same things onto our kids, we look to boast at how smart our kids are and boast in what college they got into, and boast in the jobs that they got, and how successful they are, and so on, and so on, and so on, until it's our grandkids' turn. Brothers and sisters, is that what drives so much of what you are pouring your life into right now? You're looking to have something to boast in. The scary thing about that is, brothers and sisters, is that you could be working so hard for success and recognition in this world that you work yourself out of usefulness in the kingdom of God. Because God looks at you and he says, well done, you're very accomplished in this world. I can't use you because you're looking to boast in yourself. That's what you've been about. 
We could do it through our job. We could do it through the ministry as I struggle with making ministry something I boast in. We could do it through our children. We could do it through so many things. And brothers and sisters, as as you guys are living here in this high-paced, pressure-filled environment that is leading people down the road of anxiety, even mental illness, as they seek to be somebody and have something to boast in, are we unknowingly falling into that trap and actually moving in the opposite direction of usefulness to God? It's like what my, my dad, before he became a Christian, would tell me. When I became a Christian and I wanted to go into full-time ministry, he would say, son, son, don't, what are you doing? Who, who, who's going to listen to you? Listen, first, become rich. <laughs> become successful. And then people will listen to you. You know what? Maybe my dad was right. Maybe that's true. Maybe then that they would, they would listen to me. But it wouldn't be the gospel that they would be listening for. They would just be wanting to have whatever it is that I had to boast in in the world. You know, many, I think this is part of the reason why so many gospel movements and revivals around the world have begun amongst the powerless the poor, the disenfranchised, because these are those types of people that Paul was talking about. Because as James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want to close with the story of William Seymour, and I've I've mentioned him before, but I just think it fits so well here. William Seymour was a, a black pastor in 1906 in L.A., And uh, he was the the central figure in the Azusa Street Revival, to which the Pentecostal movement today, with hundreds of millions of people around the world who claim to be Pentecostals, most of them find their roots or have been influenced by the Azusa Street Revival. Now, we're not Pentecostal. We disagree with some aspects of their theology, but, uh, you know, Pentecostals are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, We disagree on some secondary issues, but... There are many wonderful brothers and sisters who are Pentecostals, hundreds of millions of them, and they trace their roots back to William Seymour. And he was a black preacher in L.A. in 1906, and he was a son of freed slaves. Remember, the Civil War and all that, that wasn't too long ago. And he began to have these revival meetings at this building called the Apostolic Faith Gospel Mission. It was like 40 by 60 feet. It used to be like a horse barn or something like that. It was a dilapidated place, and they put benches there. But the Holy Spirit came and moved in such a powerful way that thousands of people came to experience this. In a 40-foot in a by 60-foot room, or 2,400 square feet, at times, 13, up to 1,300 people would squeeze in and be on the edges and outside and trying to just experience what God was doing there. And many people came to know the Lord. And over the course of three years, there were, three, there were like three services a day, seven days a week, year after year for like three years. Now that itself is really amazing. But I think one of the most amazing things is the people that it brought together. If you look at the leadership team here, 
A lot of the leaders of this movement, William Seymour is in the middle. But the crazy thing about this picture is that it is mixed with blacks and whites in this church in 1906, Los Angeles, the height of Jim Crow, the Jim Crow era. Slavery was abolished as an institution, but systemic racism was still rampant and segregation was rampant in our country. Blacks and whites did not mix together. But here was a church where not only did they mix together, but a black man was their pastor. A guy named um, uh, John B Frank Bartleman wrote a lot about what was happening in this time when he was there witnessing things. And he said, the color line was washed away in the blood of Jesus. Uh, Vincent Sinan, dean of the School of Divinity at Regent U University in Virginia Beach, who researched this a lot, said that it was purely miraculous that white men were under the authority of William Seymour during this time. And she said, from that day on, I would say that Pentecostalism has had more crossing of ethnic boundaries than any movement in the world in Christianity. Not only that, William Seymour also, to top all things off, he only had one eye. <laughs> he had one eye. He, he was disabled. This was the man leading the ministry. A, a local newspaper wrote about it in a very critical way, actually. This local newspaper said this about the Azusa Street Revival. It said, they claim to be filled with the Spirit. They have a one-eyed, illiterate Negro, you can see how racist the paper was, Negro as their preacher who stays on his knees much of the time with his head hidden between the wooden milk crates. He doesn't talk very much, but at times he can be heard shouting, repent, and he's supposed to be running the thing. Uh, Frank Bartleman, again, about the whole wood crates thing, he wrote this. He said, Brother Seymour generally sat behind two empty shoe boxes. I guess these were big crates. One on top of the other. He usually kept his head inside the top one during the meeting in prayer. There was no pride there. I've heard it said that the reason William Seymour did this, that he hid behind boxes praying with his head inside a crate, was because he was so fearful that this movement, that what God was doing would be attributed to him instead of God, that he did what he could to hide himself and keep himself out of the limelight. A one-eyed, illiterate black man who was the son of freed slaves in Jim Crow era, Los Angeles, led a church of whites, blacks, and also even Hispanics and Asians that came, that influenced hundreds of millions of Pentecostals in this world. That man would hide behind crates to seek to give the glory to God and not himself. I think this is an example of what Paul is talking about, where God is seeking, he chooses people that will boast not in themselves, but that will boast in God. Brothers and sisters, my questions for you today are simply this. Would we heart-level stuff today. It, it, are, we, are we saying that I'm not ready to talk about Jesus because we think we don't know enough or I need to learn more or are we watering it down, the message of the gospel? But really, is it because we're afraid? Because we're scared? 
Paul says it is a message of foolishness to this world. We are proclaiming a foolish message, and that will never, ever change. It doesn't matter what degree you have, what job you have, how well-learned you are. We preach a foolish message to this world. But when God calls, people will come. And the hard question of what are you seeking in this world? Are you seeking to be somebody right now? Brothers and sisters, when we come to a place where we can say, God, I'm done making my life about being somebody, I'm okay with being a nobody. I'm content with that because all I want, God, is I want you to be exalted through my life. The freedom that comes, the power that comes as God says, ah, there is a humble servant that I can use for the glory of my name.